Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheet. And this is Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's pin is a special one for our guest today. Uh, she hails from Florida, so I'm wearing a Florida orange that was crocheted for me by someone from Florida. I love the pin. Um, you know, as you all know, there's so much news regarding Donald Trump and all of the trials and investigations into him. And, and we were going to talk about that with our guest today, but we decided to ask her a first question about her career. And it just ended up being such a remarkable and fascinating um, interview and, and answer that we ended up talking about that for the entire episode. And it's one that you will not want to miss. It is such an interesting career. We had such a great time. And of course, if you watch MSNBC, you have seen Katie as a brilliant legal commentator and now as an equally brilliant host of her own show, The Katie Fang Show, which is every Saturday and Sunday, and as a substitute host for Ari Melber and many other of the uh, primetime anchors. So I know you know her, but please listen to today's podcast. You will know her even better we had such a delightful conversation that we had to change everything we had planned to do on this show. But she has agreed to come back for a second show to talk more about uh, all the Trump legal stuff. Um, you will learn that Katie has had a long career in law and in local television and at other networks, providing clear and in-depth legal analysis, as well as trial um, being a trial attorney in Florida. Katie and I first met in a Chicago TV studio where she was covering a criminal trial. And then again, we met at NBC in New York where we even ended up going shopping for a gift for her daughter at FAO Schwartz, right next to the NBC studios. And I am just so glad to know her and to consider her a friend and to welcome Katie to the show today. It's great to have you here today, Katie. Thank you for joining us. It's always so good to spend time with you guys, especially when it's not in the more formal boxes on my screen when I'm asking you guys questions on my show or on another show. Feel free to ask us any questions, but this time it's our turn to ask you questions. Yes. And I want to start by talking about your career, because as I understand it, it's a really interesting path into your current role as a TV anchor. I started out college in journalism hoping to go into newspaper, not TV, and only went to law school because there was so much discrimination against women in journalism that I thought I could impress an editor and get a better journalism job. Of course, I ended up skipping the transfer back to journalism. But so talk about, I know you went to law school, of course, and then you ended up right now in journalism. So how did that happen? Well, I have to start by saying how serendipitous for all of us that you have done what you've done, Jill, and where it's kind yes. of come full circle a little bit, right? Because now yeah. you yeah. are in journalism, you're in print as well as on TV and on podcasts as well. So we're fortunate that that turns out for you. And then the other thing is how ironic to leave an industry to go to law school, but an industry that was very male dominated to go to law, which is still very male dominated, I might add, even though law schools are more than 50% women um, students right now, but it's still a very male dominated industry. But I agree with you that having that law school and the legal, I think it gives you a, an advantage to what you do now. Mm -hmm. um, I just told somebody the other day, you wanna talk about serendipity, 
to, for what we're dealing with right now, to have a law background, I think has made all the difference. Yes. Uh, not only for me professionally, but just as a consumer of information um, in light of all the legal cases that have been affecting us, our democracy and our country. I think it's great that I can lean into my law background. I never, ever thought I was going to do TV or journalism or anything like that. When I was growing up, I wanted to be, get this, a pediatric immunologist. I wanted to, Oh wow! when I was in junior high and high school, I was volunteering at a local um, HIV and AIDS clinic at Jackson Memorial Hospital in downtown oh Miami. God. And I, 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 obviously it was not naivete on my part, but still I think some level of optimism, I thought that I'd be able to help kids um, that wow. are HIV positive, um, you know, maybe go into pediatric oncology, kids that have cancer, try to help them. So I got into a six-year med program at the University of Miami where I was growing up, yeah. and you would have gotten your BSMD in six years. So I would have graduated at the age of 24 with a BS um, and with a medical degree, and I got into that program, and then I also got into a lot of other schools, and in the end, I decided to go away because I grew up in a very, I appreciate the installation of the work ethic, but it was a tough tough childhood like it was hard it was the constant demand to get straight A's and the whole I adore my mother but tiger mom kind of energy and I was like you know what I can't do this like I got to get out of Miami my dad was still teaching at the University of Miami as well so I went away to to Yale for undergrad and when I was there um, as a sophomore I started taking organic chemistry and it was notoriously I, hard it was so hard and I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. So I switched. And the reason I'm going this far back for you guys is because I switched from biology major to political science because I loved the poli-sci classes, the history classes. And even though that didn't ultimately inform my decision to go to law school, I actually got a job in New York City where a whole bunch of us were going to graduate from Yale and go and work when we, when we left college. But my mom got sick my senior year. And so I said, you know what, let me go back to Miami and let me help out at home because my dad, brilliant with a PhD, but couldn't like fry an egg. So I said, you know, let me just go back home and let me just do like what's going on. And that's how I ended up going to law school. I didn't pursue law school. It wasn't like a plan. In fact, I don't think I was ever going to move back to Miami, but I ended up going to law school at the University of Miami. And as a 1L, um, it was obviously an adjustment uh, for law school, but I started doing the mock trial that they had at the law school. And, 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 and I loved it. I was like, oh my God, this is so great. I love doing this. And so that really helped me focus on trial advocacy and trying to really work on my litigation skills, which is why I went straight to the state attorney's office to be a prosecutor straight out of law school. I didn't do the white glove, white shoe, big law, you know, route, because for me, I knew I was never going to be seeing the inside of a courtroom if I did that. So I was like, you know, I really want to be in court. And so that is why I ended up having the ability and the access to TV, because after I was a prosecutor for five years, I was a division chief. I was running a courtroom trying death penalty and other, you know, life felonies in Florida. And a local CBS affiliate came to me during the second Michael Jackson pedophilia trial and said, we want to do a point counterpoint local TV kind of rehashing of what happened in the Michael Jackson trial the day before and what the kind of strategic plan is for that day. And we want to use you as a prosecutor and a local criminal defense lawyer who did some TV here or there 
to kind of talk about, you know, what is what we should expect and why we saw what we saw. And I don't know, Victor, you're way too young to remember this, but this <laughs> trial, I was going to say, Victor, this trial with Michael Jackson, though, like he would show up late to court. Everybody would be waiting for him. Um, he would do like, uh, he would pop up in like his sunroof and like stand on the roof of his car and get to court. I mean, it was just a wild trial. And that was how I started doing TV. And we had things that ran the gamut from Terry Shiva was going on in Florida at the time, the euthanasia case, the big euthanasia case, um, to Robert Durst. I mean, like there was like so much stuff that was going on that I kept on doing more and more TV. And after a few months, the news director at the local CBS affiliate said, I have the need for a general assignment reporter. Would you consider leaving your job as a prosecutor and coming over and working with us? And I said, I'll make you a deal. If you let me do the courthouse seat for Miami, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, which you can imagine, we have crazy cases yeah, in Florida. Yeah. I'm like, I'm your girl. I'll, I'll leave being a lawyer. I'll come do full-time TV. And she's like, no, I, I really need general assignment. It's whatever comes up I need you to cover. Um, and I said, no, I'm not doing, you know, highly a house fire with cat in a tree at 4 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, I got student <laughs> loans, you know, I was already going to take, you know, even less money to do it. And, and, and the way that the universe works, I'm a big believer, you are where you are, where the universe wants you to be, whatever you believe in, whatever, you know, upper kind of higher entity you're being, you believe in. And I needed that because I focused on the law. I left criminal law. I became a civil litigator. I learned about billable hours and client development. I learned about, you know, civil rules of procedure, um, having, you know, grown up after five years of just criminal. And it was great because I got exposed to not only different kinds of law, different kinds of cases, but the legal industry in and of itself is a totally different beast than when you're in public service as a prosecutor. And I loved that experience because now, after having practiced law for 20 something years, I think I have the street credibility to talk about those cases. So it's not just the criminal cases. When I, as a host or an anchor, as an analyst, I talk about them, I can talk about the civil litigation, the, the commercial litigation. I can talk about, you know, the defamation cases. I mean, the things that are not typically criminal, I can still talk about them and talk about them credibly because I think it's a disservice. And Jill, I know it agrees with me. It's a disservice when we talk about things as, as analysts and people watch you and they listen to you and you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, I don't think we should. I think we should stay in our own lane in that regard. So that's how I ended up doing the TV. But more accurately, at the end of 2021, towards the end of 2021, MSNBC approached me after I'd been working as a lead contributor for them for a number of years and said that they wanted to have me do my own show. I actually ignored them for a while, which I know sounds crazy if people think about it. But I was practicing law with my husband. I had my own law firm. I had been running my own business for a while and I thought it was a big ask for me to leave, to leave something I had done for 20 something years to go do something I had never done in my life at the stage in, in my life and in my career, because it's literally reinventing yourself. I'm not Cher. I'm not Madonna. I'm like not one of those people that can successfully do that. And it was a big discussion in my family with my mom and with my husband, I even talked to my, my daughter at the time. I'm like, you know, these are changes that would happen to our family. And my husband, maybe not so politely said, you're not getting any younger, Katie. If you're going to do a TV show, you should do it now. And he's right. It wasn't just age. It, chronologically, it was just experience, right? And so that's why I decided to 
rip the Band-Aid off and do this full time. It's so interesting. And at some point we have to sit over drinks and share <laughs> one difference I will point out in my career trajectory is when I went to law school, 5% of my class was female and 4% mm -hmm. of the profession was female. So if I thought there was discrimination against women in journalism, I just didn't think about what the discrimination was in law. But, um, and like you, moot court and then uh, trial practice made me go, oh, you know, this might be more interesting than I thought it would be. I might actually like doing this. And like you, I went into, I went federal, not state, but I went into federal prosecution because that's where you can actually get experience right away. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and although I did face some discrimination there after they hired me as a trial mm -hmm. lawyer, it took a year before I got my first actual trial as opposed to appeal because I was a girl in there. Literally, they called me that because I was a girl and would be more vulnerable in a courtroom with made members of the mob since I was in organized crime. So there's a lot of similarities there. But I know Victor had a follow up question he wanted to ask. Well, no, I mean, you, you mentioned your um, just how the, the, the disparity between male and female, but also I'm curious about what it's like being an Asian American in both the law and the media where there I don't see many Asian American anchors or faces in the media. Can you talk more about that and some of the challenges and how you've sort of navigated those? I love that question because my honest answer is for most of my life, I've never really identified with being Asian. And I'm a first generation Korean American. My parents immigrated to the United States from Seoul, South Korea at different points, not together. And I always talk about my, my late father being the, Amer the truly epitomizing the American dream. This man came to this country with nothing, barely spoke any, any English. And when he passed, he had a PhD. He had had a successful career in academics and, you know, had a long marriage with two kids, two grandchildren, you know, the whole kind of white picket fence energy. But for me, because I grew up in, born in New York, but grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and then Miami, Florida, you are, I think, informed by who you're around. And when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of Asians. The only Asians that I were, I was in public school. There were a few of us in public school, but most of the Asians I saw were, and of course, meeting with the stereotypes. I played classical piano and violin for a long time. So we all saw each other at youth symphony or, yeah, you know, yeah. I did honors and AP classes, et cetera. And we saw them in those classes. But when I went away to college, I was startled at how many Asians were at college with me. I had never been around that many Asians. And interestingly at Yale, um, they kind of self-segregated. So all of the Koreans were together, all the Vietnamese were together, all the Japanese were together. It wasn't like one big homogenous group of Asian people. So I felt even more marginalized. Um, I was told that I was uh, a Twinkie or a banana, that I was yellow on the outside oh. and white on the inside. I came with like a really dark tan. I had put like sun in and lemon juice in my hair. I had highlights and like curly hair with a perm. I mean, I looked totally different than a lot of the girls I started college with. And this was in the 90s when I went there. And so I was like, you know what, this even further reinforces that I'm not really Korean. I didn't like Korean food. Um, when we would visit my family in New York, I would make my parents go get me Burger King hamburgers. I wouldn't do Korean barbecue. I mean, I was just, it wasn't anti-Korean, but I'm like, you know what? I didn't really feel like I felt I fit in anywhere. 
I mean, I knew, but the other crazy thing was I didn't think I visibly looked that different than everybody else. So it's always been kind of a jaw dropping experience when somebody highlights that they're like, no, you don't look like everybody else. I'm like, no, I feel like I look like everybody else. So the only time it's ever been an issue and it kind of dovetails with what Jill said, number one, being a female trial lawyer is still a rarity too. I mean, and I'm not just talking criminal in civil, especially I've always, you know, been like a very fierce trial lawyer. And so I've, kind of parachuted in at the last minute to try cases on big cases. And I've been first chair. Um, and so I know it's a little bit of like a thing to be like, okay, it's a woman. And now it's, you know, an Asian woman. Um, and the other thing that really kind of really grounded this for me, though, in terms of my identity culturally was when I started this job, because as a legal analyst, again, it's like, you know, I'm looking up to people like Jill and Joyce Vance and Barb McQuaid. And, you know, I'm looking at those, you know, really accomplished lawyers, and I'm not thinking that I look different than them. I'm just thinking, wow, you know what? I'm learning. I'm still learning from amazing people like that. But when I started this job, I went to this, my very first AAJA conference. And this was in 2022. And it was the, you know, Asian American Journalists Association. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go. It's my first one. It was out in LA. And I went, and this is only after I had my show for a few months. And I go and I'm thinking, okay, this will just be like every other kind of lawyer association conference I've been to, you know, a whole bunch of people, you do a couple of panels, you kind of hang out, whatever, and that's it. And I walk in and number one, see a face is all, almost all exclusively Asian. But number two, the way that people spoke with me about me having my own show, but more importantly, me having my own name on the show yeah. was so humbling. It was so unbelievably humbling because it never occurred to me that just seeing the name, the Katie Fang show would make a difference to anybody. I was like, yeah, it's my name. My parents gave me that name. You know, I didn't change it when I got married. Like, that's my name or whatever. And for them to say, no, you don't understand what this means, Katie, for us. It, it means that there's now someone who looks like us, sounds like us, you know, cares about our issues, um, that they're now having a national, if not bigger platform. Um, you know, with the advent of the internet, um, to, to show what we're capable of doing. And I never thought it was groundbreaking, right? I never thought it was that big of a deal. I was like, okay, you just work really hard. So I've always been thinking, and again, sometimes it's naivete, but everything's merit-based. You work hard, you log the hours, you know, you, you, you put in the, the sweat equity into something, it pays off for you. And I've been fortunate that I think it really has. And I still continue to believe in that even at my age. But it never really, Victor, I, I didn't think like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm Asian and this is what we do. It was more like, okay, this is a new job for me that I need to take very seriously because I have a huge responsibility. But at the same time now, if I can put an AAPI voice on, as you know, I will. Um, but I'm also very sensitive to this. I'll leave you with this. I don't want to feel like I'm just doing the, some exclusivity on AAPI issues. I believe that these issues are all common denominator issues for all communities. And so, you know, I, I try to make sure that if somebody thinks of my show, they don't think, oh, I'm only going to hear about AAPI stuff. If there is an opportunity, though, to highlight an AAPI issue, of course I will. And if I can talk about it, I will. But I think my goal has always been let me give content or create content so that viewers feel like it's relatable to them and they feel better informed and they feel like they got something out of listening that they don't feel like is only applicable to a particular community. But if at the same time I can open their eyes that there's something that's happening in the AAPI community, 
for which they should have some empathy or some understanding, I try to do that. Wow, that is totally fascinating. And and one of the things you mentioned was the you know role models. And of course, going back to my era, there were almost no women in any profession, um, except for maybe nursing and teaching. Um, so how, I mean, you kind of fell into journalism by being approached about a specific case, but um, how how did you even think that there was a career in television that you could pursue? And it, just to make sure that, you know, and again, our intergenerational audience, as you said, Victor wasn't alive during the Michael Jackson <laughs> trial. Um, it, it's And of course, we do try on this show to bring an intergenerational approach and show the differences. But we also try to make sure that, for example, his generation would know that there is a career path for legally trained people to go on television and into many other careers. I mean, I've had, you know, I I was a business career for a while, which my my law degree was really helpful for. Um, But how did you know that you could make a career out of this? Well, I mean, being a legal analyst and having done it for a while sporadically and then pretty regularly led me to have an understanding that there is a role for an analyst, right? Because a lot of us, when we consume TV and especially for my generation, which I don't even know how you define or label my generation, but we grew up very quote, traditionally turning on a TV, sometimes literally going over and turning it on like a knob and what I call the Holy Trinity of broadcast, right? ABC, NBC, and CBS. Like that was just what you had, right? We didn't have cable. We didn't have that. And my version of consumption of news was an anchor sitting at a desk and reporters, right? In what that was. And that was it. And I'm not trying to make it sound too rudimentary or too prehistoric, but that's really what it was. And I think the incredible thing that has happened with technology is Um, one of the kind of benefits, quote, of the pandemic is us realizing we can do this, right? That technology permits us to be in different places all over the country, all over the world, and still be able to not only kind of hang out socially, but also professionally be able to transmit information so that people can can get it. And I think what's been the game changer, though, is something that Jill understands, too. Having the training and the experience as a lawyer has not and having the job you know kind of experience from our careers has led us to not only have anecdotal experience to talk about what historically has actually happened or what we've experienced in court traditionally in a case that helps us talk about where cases are going to go or even kind of predict maybe where trends are going to go but it's also helped us i think with our critical thinking and analytical skills to be able to look at any issue, especially even political. I mean, there used to be a time where I think people's lanes were really well-defined. You only talked politics, you only talked law, you only talked certain types of culture, right? And that was it. But now, as you see, you know, Victor, I can talk to you about an issue that's specific to you and to your community, and it may have a legal component, a political component, a cultural component, a life component, exactly, right? And I think if you go to law school, you should go because you want to be there, number one, because it's really expensive. Law school is very expensive. A lot of people kind of poo-poo the value of the degree you get. I still think there's a value to a law degree or any type of advanced degree you can get. But if you go to law school and you leave, you can practice law or you don't. 
you can go in-house or you can be, you know, in public governmental, you know, agencies, or you can go into private practice, but there's always going to be the need for somebody with more kind of advanced information in a particular field. I give an, as an example all the time, when I don't feel well, even though I got to be like losing a limb at this point, I'll go to a doctor, right? I go to a doctor because they have a specialty and because I need them to help me. Same thing happens. You go to a lawyer when you have a problem and you need to have that problem fixed. I think even now when we're living this insanity of this world right now, we need to have more information because it makes us feel better. And to be better informed, we want to hear it from people that either have experienced it or they've been through it or they can talk about it either academically or anecdotally. And I think that's the reason why having a law degree or having a law experience professionally can lend you to being a better TV personality or a TV analyst or a TV host because you've either seen that type of case or you've lived that experience in either way it allows us to sit together and have these kinds of conversations. I mean, that's such an interesting point you bring up. One of the things that Jill and I talk so much about on the show is how you know not enough people, I think, spend time thinking about how they can apply those different types of skills to different careers, right? So I'm right now, I'm an English major and there's a, actually a decline in English departments around the country and humanities in general, because not enough people know how they can take what they learn in the humanities class and apply it into a kind of career in a creative way. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to those young people who might be out there wondering how they can take the skill that they learn in either undergrad or law school and apply it in a creative way in the way that you did. Cause not many people make that connection between I would imagine law school and TV. So I, I think what's incredible is this day and age, we are no longer siloed. There was a time before this type of technology that Jill's in Chicago. So only if I'm in Chicago where I'll ever see Jill, right? And say I saw Jill Weinbanks on TV or um, whatever, or I heard about her, or I read about her. I'd have to literally like take a sojourn and like get on a plane or drive and get on a train and go see Jill in Chicago if I wanted to actually, you know, learn something from her or meet her, et cetera. Now I can, you know, get on a, I can tune in and listen to your podcast and get insight from her and you, or I could, you know, get on a Zoom with her or whatever. I mean, the reason why, and I'm not trying to simplify Exactly. You can DM her on Twitter, threads, wherever. But think about that, though, through social media, too, right? And so to your point, though, Victor, it's like any person who wants to be able to have that exposure, we're not siloed anymore. We're all so accessible these days that I think it makes sense that for me, my beginnings were local TV. And I still tell people local affiliates still need local lawyers to talk about local cases and local issues, whether it's the zoning, right? Condo zoning or whatever here on Miami beach. Like you still need somebody who can talk about that. I tell people, especially if they're, you know, younger lawyers and they are interested in doing TV, et cetera. I'm like, reach out to your local affiliates, to the reporters, to the news directors, talk to them, radio, talk radio. A lot of people forget we still have radio too. And that still streams on the internet. I mean, that type of stuff, you can actually get your feet wet there because it's not realistic to think that you're going to end up, you know, as a legal analyst with like zero law experience, like on MSNBC tomorrow when you graduate from law school tomorrow. But if you, I personally think too, if you're still honing your craft that you went to law school to do, it makes you more valuable 
as somebody who wants to do TV. I always like to see that that person hasn't just been, you know, logging hours doing whatever, like they've actually tried to be in the community and doing things because I do think it makes a difference. And and I want to stress one of the things you mentioned, which is the critical thinking skills you get in law school. Those are applicable in any career you will ever be in. And it's a really important skill to learn. I wish high school students learned it. I wish all college students learned it, but it is something you definitely get in law school. But I want to move to something I didn't know about you until uh, we were preparing for the show, which was that you were at Fox News for a brief oh, yeah. period as a legal analyst. And yeah. um, given everything we know about Fox now and their, you know, the settlement they had for lying and also for sexual harassment, I'm just wondering what your experience was like there. And, you know, talk about that a little. So the way that I ended up at Fox doing um, legal analysis is, and this is really fascinating and kind of dovetails with what Victor was just asking about, the local CBS affiliate that I was doing stuff for, a lot of the directors and the producers from there went national. So for example, our own Jesse Rodriguez at MSNBC oh, really? that Jill knows, right? Oh, yeah. He's from Miami and he worked at that CBS affiliate and that's when I first met Jesse Rodriguez and Jesse went to MSNBC and DC, right? Yeah. Another young... So another guy that was there um, went to Fox News and he became the executive producer for the Greta Van Susteren show that she had there. And I ended up doing, it was called On the Record with Greta Van Susteren. Right. And right. yeah. And so out of the blue, I get a call from him and he's like, hey, uh, Greta does a legal panel, you know, on her show. We had an opening for a legal analyst. Are you still doing TV? Do you want to come and do it? I'm like, you know, why not? Why not? I'll go and I'll do it. And I went to the local Fox Bureau and I did it. It was fun. I had a great time. The There was a guy named Ted Williams, who's a lawyer from D.C. And he's a former homicide detective and all this other stuff. And he's a lawyer and criminal defense lawyer. And he was always on. And I loved it. We had actually a lot of fun talking about some crazy case. And then the next day, the executive producer called me back and said, Greta loved you. Can you come back again tonight? I'm like, well, I don't know. I got work, but maybe, you know, the next day. And it kind of began like a run of me being on almost every night on primetime with Greta on Fox News. And at the time, we were sandwiched between Brett Baer and I want to say Bill O'Reilly, which is crazy because this was still the Bill O'Reilly <laughs> time. Um, but, the, but I will tell, and I've, I've said this before, being based in Miami and not being at the Fox Corps, which is News Corps, which is over on Sixth Avenue in New York City. I wasn't there. Like I wasn't walking the hallways. Like I fly to New York every once in a while, but otherwise like I wasn't there to be like in the mix. Crazy story. I was friends back then with Kimberly Guilfoyle. Kim Guilfoyle was great and normal and fun. I'm like, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Like how times have changed. Um, but I will say this. It was fine up until 2016. In 2016, I voted for Hillary Clinton for president of the United States. I was a, and I was a Republican um, and I could not vote for Donald Trump. I voted for Hillary Clinton. And the reason why that's important is it started to get very wonky there. The energy got very weird. Um, I was doing some shows, one show in particular, I got sandbagged on live TV asking me, who did you vote for, for president? It just was really uncomfortable for me. And by luck, um, at the end of 2016, 
Greta, uh, somebody by the name of Megan Kelly, um, and I, the three of us left Fox and went to MSNBC. Greta went to get a show that was yeah. on MS for a brief period of time. Megan came over for a brief period of time and I came over and it was an adjustment because when I came over, it wasn't because my ideologies were all messed up. It was just because I came over from Fox and I was some foreign analyst from Fox who was now on MS. But I do think that's why in some ways too, we should give some grace to people that are former Republicans because I'm no longer a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I became an independent in 2016 and then I became, um, and then I became a Democrat in 2018. Um, I think we should give some grace to people who are former Republicans or maybe, you know, had different kind of mindsets about things, but have seen the light as we say, and have realized, you know, how, how fragile our democracy is. I think it's something that we take for granted and, and not to be too soapboxy about it, but when I was growing up, I couldn't tell you, other than the governor of my state, anyone really else, right? Other than maybe a local mayor, um, I didn't really know. And if you asked me to tell you who was in Congress, I'd have no idea, no clue. And, it, and I came from a household where education was paramount. Like you had yeah. to have an education. And it wasn't because I was ignorant. It's like we took so much for granted growing up. We took so much for granted that the guardrails were there. And we were never going to be in a place that was going to be so crazy like it is now. And I think what people need to realize is that is why your collective voices, Victor and Jill, are so important. Um, why our collective voices, the three of us, are so important because we all have our own platforms to educate people on what issues are important, why they're important, and how we can protect them the best. And it's been so eye-opening for me, and that's what I share with my nine-year-old daughter all the time, that we can't take certain things for granted. You know, we laugh in our home because she thinks Trump's the bad man. She says he's the bad man, right? Yes. But, I mean, I want her to understand why there is a threat to what her future looks like with Ron DeSantis as the governor in our state, why her rights have now been, you know, minimized, if not eliminated in some areas as a nine-year-old girl. Um, you know, these are the things that she understands now are important and maybe doesn't understand the full gravity of it, but these are honest conversations that we have because she comes home from an active shooter drill and that's her life now as a nine-year-old. And that's stuff that we didn't grow up with Victor, Joe and I. And so, you know, we're, some of us are kind of late to the dance and, you know, some of us are, are getting caught up. And that's why I try to say to people, because sometimes I get criticized, like, why would you have, such and such person on your show, blah, blah, blah. And they, you know, were supportive of Trump, maybe the first time around. I'm like, because you know what? We all grow up, not all of us, but we all grow up. We all kind of learn um, from our mistakes or we learn from, you know, experience. And that's why we need to kind of listen to them and, and listen very carefully to what people have to say. So you mentioned something that I wanted to follow up on, which is about how you learn about and our as an anchor required to talk about areas beyond the law. You have to yeah. talk about the Israeli Hamas conflict. You have to talk about the economy, all things that are, you know, outside your main academic training and experience. So how does that happen? How do you learn how to do all of those things? How do you get to be an expert enough to ask the questions? Do you have a big, research team or, you know, I mean, there's only so much reading you can do. 
So how, I mean, I know how hard it is to prepare for, like for the sisters-in-law to be an expert just in three legal questions every week and in depth. So how do you do it? So I'll walk you guys through a day in the life because maybe I'll give yeah. you some insight. Um, so I read a lot and I kind of joke that I am the queen of random trivia now because I've become a mini expert <laughs> in so much random crap. And I'm like, did you know? Dot, dot, dot. Um, I, I, I'm terrified of saying something wrong. Um, and so I read a lot and I prep a lot. So for example, the Katie Fang show is the first live show on MSNBC on the weekends at 8 a.m. Eastern. I get up at 2 a.m. because I drive myself when I'm in Miami to Telemundo Studios, which is at the other end of the county in Miami, um, because I have to be in the chair for hair and makeup at 4 a.m. in the morning. Because at 5 a.m., I have to be what we call camera ready for any breaking news. And as you guys know, breaking news happens all the time now, right? right. And with the time difference between here and like Israel, for example, we kind of have to be on. So when I get to Telemundo, I'm already reading um, stuff that I'd already begun reading earlier, a few days earlier, right? But because news is breaking and changing all the time, some some parts of the rundown for the show are set in stone. For example, Jill coming to talk about something legal, it's not going to really change between now. Well, I was going to um, say, it yeah. usually wouldn't change. Um, <laughs> but like if it's like a Thursday and I have Jill booked for a Saturday, I'm in pretty good shape. Um, if it's yeah. today, like Monday for a show on Saturday, hell no. Jill will be booked for Saturday, but you know, we'll just yeah. have to roll with it until we get closer. Yeah. Um, but to Jill's point, the legal filings, they're concrete, right? And and the arguments are usually ones that we've heard about or, we, or about which we are familiar. But everything else I'm learning on the fly, and it involves a lot of reading, and it's got to be from sources that are trusted. It also has to be, I think, for me, the emphasis for me and my show are the more nuanced questions. So I try not to ask the questions that you might have heard answered during the week. It is a luxury to be on the weekend show, but it's also a curse because by the time you hit Saturday, a lot of the guests and or the topics will already have been hashed over during the week. So when you tune into my show, that's why I get in the weeds on the legal issues with the brilliant legal minds that I get on the show. But it's also like when, Victor, you know, you get on my show or somebody else is on my show, I don't want to ask you the same damn question you've already been asked before. Not because it was a bad question, but because somebody's probably already heard that answer. So, for example, if it's an issue involving Gen Z, it's not just, oh, this is what Gen Z cares about. It's more like, okay, let's take that issue and let's deep dive a little bit more, not necessarily on the Gen Z angle, but on that issue itself. So that when I speak to Victor, I can ask him a question that is maybe through his lens as Gen Z, but, you know, I can speak intelligently about that issue and not just through the prism of just that, that, that vision or perspective from Victor. That takes a lot of time. And so I'm reading, 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 reading. Now, while I'm doing all of this, I have a team that has segment producers and they're helping me produce each block. But I don't like reading from the teleprompter verbatim so i ad lib all the time on the show so if you'll if you tune to the show and you listen to the beginning of a segment i will be reading from the prompter because i will have gone into a system a computer system that we have and i will have edited the copy that's been put in there by the segment producer and i will work with that segment producer in advance of the show 
for the graphics you see, the sound you hear, et cetera. And I'll work with that person. But then as soon as we switch to joining me now is, you know, Jill Wine Bank, then that's usually almost 100% ad-libbed by me, if not 99% ad-libbed. Because as a lawyer, we're trained when you put a witness on the stand to listen to what that witness says. Yeah, yeah. Because if you're too married to the next question in your bullet points, direct examination or cross-examination, you're wow. going to miss something that they've said. So I will, I, I have questions, don't get me wrong, that if I need to go to them, I call them the lily pads, I can go to them, especially in areas when they're non-legal, when it comes to mm-hmm. counterterrorism, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to anything like that. But otherwise, I think it's an opportunity for me to learn from Jill Winding. And so I'll just start talking to Jill. So it's not even an interview of Jill, it's more of a conversation with. Huh. And what then I'll listen to what, hmm? what does lily pad mean? You said it, you meaning it- like, it, it's like if, if there, if it's like a, a question about maybe inflation and I don't know enough about the economy or inflation, what I'll do is I'll make sure that I have a bullet point on my teleprompter oh, that yeah. will kind of like be there for me to go to if I need to know, like if there's a statistic that I want to remember, or if it's something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. it'll be there as a lily pad for me to kind of rest myself to give me like, you know, something to, to be on safely so that I can, you know, go on to a next question or a next topic. But the biggest challenge that people don't understand is, or maybe they do because they're like, why is this segment so short? I have to get it all in like in five minutes, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I got all this information in in five minutes, which is almost impossible. So the biggest adjustment for me has been, how do I succinctly di- get something, you know, condensed into that period of time so people can digest it and learn something um, but still not do a disservice to the guests because I'm very mindful that my guests spend their time to come and join me and they want to do that. I'm trying to be respectful of that, but I want to make sure that I am the most informed, not because I want to sound like I'm the most informed, but because I think it's rude to a guest when you're asking them to speak with you about a topic to you yourself, not be informed in that area. Um, and so that's how I prep for my show. And then it's a mad dash to the finish line because before you know it, the show's over. It's 42 minutes of TV in the right, end. Right. It's breaks for commercials, et cetera. And then on live TV, you have to be prepared to pivot at any time. And so I've had to completely erase rundowns for shows when something has been breaking, sadly, a wow. mass shooting event or you know even something of the war, maybe in Ukraine. Um, it's a last minute pivot so that you can just revamp the whole thing. So, that, so your team is really important with whom you work. Um, for your show. Um, and they're, my team is brilliant. A lot of them are young. Um, and so it's, and, and, and we're not all in the same place. For me, I'm, when I'm out of Miami, my executive producer is in Washington, DC, mm. and the rest of my team is in New York City or in the oh. borough of New York. So we produce the Katie Fang show um, through three control rooms, Miami, DC, and New York. Um, and again, welcome to the 21st century. We wouldn't have been able to do that before. You'd have to go in to a studio to do it. And so with the advent of this tech, we're able to hang out like this. It takes a village. And I will say, um, I've had the honor of being on your show here on the West Coast, and there's no one else I would wake up for that early other than you. But you truly do make it feel like a conversation, which does help. And the questions you ask are are just different. You're, you're so right. Um, I want to ask you more about you mentioned breaking news and and your role being an anchor you know when there is breaking news as we know this is a time when there's so much misinformation and covering breaking news you know you have to get the facts right 
How do you approach those moments of breaking news and making sure that you have all the facts, all the information so that you're giving the audience factual, but also up-to-date um, information? So the luxury I have for the Katie Fang show is I'm an opinion perspective show. So for example, I can rail against Donald Trump all day long because that's my opinion. That's my perspective. That's what I believe in. Um, but when we're in a breaking news scenario, I'm not there to give my opinion or my uh, perspective to the viewers. I think when you're in breaking news, I know as a consumer of the news, I'd want the information, the facts, the evidence. I don't necessarily need to know your take, Katie, on, on what's transpiring. So we have a very strict system internally in terms of the information that can be conveyed um, in terms of standards and legal, in terms of what ends up being broadcast on our network. But I think, Victor, when it's breaking news and you're tuning in, the most service that I can provide is to give you the most information about which has not only been vetted and confirmed, but is the most informative. Again, you don't need my opinion on it. You just need to know what is happening. But it is difficult because there is usually very little information that's coming in. Um, but if it is, for example, in the setting of a mass shooting, some of the information that I can kind of externally bring in are the latest statistics on mass shootings and gun violence in the United States or maybe in the state within which that mass shooting has happened. I can do that. Uh, that's not me interjecting my opinion. That's not me sitting there, you know, um, you know, preaching about uh, gun control, which I do preach about. Um, it's just me having you tuning in about this particular breaking news event have more information, right? Not irrelevant information, but more information. So that kind of stuff I can weave in to a broadcast, but otherwise it's, it's every minute you don't really know what's going to happen. It's, you know, bringing in law enforcement or bringing in an analyst who can talk about it. Um, and then in those situations, I lean more heavily on the analyst, him or herself or, or them. Like I will lean on them to be able to inform my viewers about their experience anecdotally with a situation that's like this. Um, and that's kind of how we handle the breaking news, or at least I do. I, I wanna ask a follow-up on that because one of the things that Victor and I ask almost all of our guests is about communicating facts and trying to get to the Fox audience. Uh, and I recognize the difference between local Fox. Our local Fox station in Chicago is not the same as Fox News. It actually, and I haven't watched it for a long time, but in the past, I would say they actually cover things factually, which I don't think Fox National does. Um, but so, you know, you mentioned how important it is, particularly in a breaking news, is that you are not an opinion person. You revert to, I'm communicating information you need to know based on the best available information that our reporters on the ground have. And do you have any further advice about how we could reach the audience? I'm sure you've talked to Fox News viewers who totally believe the garbage they're fed. They believe what Donald Trump says and what Sean Hannity and whoever else says. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any advice on that, because to us, that's really critical is how to have these conversations, how to get people to accept what is true, what is not made up, what is not just belief. Any, any advice on that? 
I mean, I'm kind of a tough person to ask that question to Jill because I don't want to be, you know, uh, negative in terms of my answer, but I'm always wanting to be honest. Um, I think that there's a certain subset of people with whom you're never going to be able to convince them of what the reality is. And I think it's because they either live in a land of fiction that's convenient for them, or they feel so aggrieved that they just really don't care because it meets a narrative that they really want to continue to hear and to have be fed or satisfied, um, which is human nature, right? You almost want validation. If you feel like you're aggrieved or put upon, you want the validation that your emotions or your feelings about that are justified. And I think that is kind of what Fox has successfully or any of those other kind of crazy far rate um, media organizations have succeeded in doing the Alex Joneses of the world example, right? Um, so I think there's a certain subset that is unfortunately larger than I would, I think a lot of us would like to admit that's just never gonna listen to us no matter how calmly rationally, quietly, you know, we say, or stoically, we say it, no histrionics, no drama, um, no matter what we say, they're not going to listen. I do think there's still a group of people that um, are willing to listen, but I think sadly what I've noticed over the last maybe few years, especially that I've only exclusively been doing TV, that group of people, unfortunately, they need to live that common experience for them to actually have some understanding. So I'm talking about, for example, some of the January Sixers that have been prosecuted or are going to jail. Some of them then see the light because they've gone through the prosecution process. They've now gone through the judicial process and now they're going to jail and suddenly they realize that they were duped by Donald Trump. Some of them haven't, by the way. Some of them are, you know, have no remorse and they don't think they ever did anything wrong or still true believers. Um, I don't think that they... I don't know. I don't, I don't think that that group of true believers is that big. I think that's the part of that really kind of that subset I just talked about, but that middle ground people, they're not really middle ground anymore. We don't really have middle ground anymore. Um, and I think, I, I think what we do is to kind of wrap up this answer. I, at least my role is if I hear something that I know is a conspiracy theory, or if I hear something that I know is just patently false, the most and the best that I can do is, put on the truth, put on a person who's going to speak about the truth. That is the most and the best that I can do. I don't really know how to meet them where they are because I can never see myself in a place where I can ignore reality to that extent. Um, we all are allowed to judge and we're all allowed to, you know, ascribe to certain principles, morals, values, et cetera. Um, I try not to do that. Um, I try not to impose that on other people. But I don't think that's what I'm doing when I give you facts, when I give you evidence, when I tell you, you know, this person did this and I have the facts and the evidence for it. I'm going to put it on the screen or I'm going to say it or I'm going to invite a guest who's going to talk about it. But otherwise, that's really the only way because I, you, I can't force feed them MSNBC and I can't force feed them to listen to you guys. Like I can't force feed them to read stuff. But I do think that kind of goes back to the importance of content moderation, which we don't seem to have on some of the bigger platforms these days. Um, and listen, I, it's not, and not just because of my age, I tune into TikTok because I want to learn makeup tips to how to cook stuff that I don't know how to cook because I don't know how to cook and to learn how to do dance moves. But I see the proliferation of news on TikTok and some of it I watch and I'm like, you gotta be joking. Like, that's just bullshit. None yeah. of that's true. And yet I see the number of views and likes that's on it. And I'm like, okay, well, what's going on with content moderation on TikTok? What's going on with content moderation on X? Even Threads now is getting a little bit funky and I'm a big fan of Threads. Um, and so I think there's, 
regulatory help that could be there. And everybody screams about the First Amendment, but there's some regulatory help that could be there. And I think the rest of us collectively just have to keep on soldiering on, even though I think we all at some point suffer from fatigue. It's tiring to have to always want to be beating the drum about what's really true and, and, and to do that. Of course, that goes back to your legal training and learning critical thinking skills and reliable sources is that you're able to do that and then communicate it because uh, you have great communication skills in addition. And hopefully the people who are listening will at least act on the facts. And the problem is getting people who are addicted to the fake news on Fox to listen to you instead. That would be a good thing. I mean, one of the things that this weekend that was so startling to me was, I don't know if you saw this clip yesterday, but you know, Fox feeds their viewers a certain type of narrative that I feel like is so just not true. Yesterday, they had this segment about Biden's age, and it was this reporter saying, well, he was asked a oh, bunch yeah. of questions um, when he was you know, traveling over the weekend. And that question was from that same Fox reporter. You also had the Rainbow Bridge moment this weekend or over Thanksgiving, and they mm -hmm. immediately labeled it as terrorism. And it's like, I, like, I don't know if that will ever change. Do you think Fox will ever, you know, I, I don't know, like, will facts ever be available for Fox viewers? I, I think that's when the internal system at Fox has to fix itself. I think that's when you have producers that are like, you can't say that, right? Like, there, there are things that we can't say on MSNBC because it's not true and or we don't know. I mean, you're not going to be hearing people say definitively, it, that was a terrorist event. Well, nobody the hell knew that that was, you know, and ultimately look what ended up happening, right? It wasn't. And as for that reporter from Fox asking the question and then reporting on the question and being dishonest about not indicating <laughs> it was him who was asking the question. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody, there has to be a repercussion for that is the bottom line. Like there has right. to be a consequence to that. Um, I, I thought that Dominion was going to be a game changer. Yes. Um, but then I, I say this all the time. One of the toughest jobs as a lawyer is managing your client's expectations to let them understand what your role is as their advocate, but it is, includes being a trusted advisor. And that means telling them they don't have a shot in hell if they do this, right? Or they should settle because of this or whatever, or you should take a plea because you're going to go to prison for a number of years. Managing client expectations is one of the difficult things as a lawyer. Same thing happens when you're on TV or you're a journalist. Well, and less, less as a journalist, more as like when you're on TV and you have viewers. Managing viewer expectations is one of the hardest things because some of them ravenously only want to hear certain stuff, right? They only kind of want to hear some things because it makes them feel, again, justified or validated in the way that they feel. I think it's more important to manage their expectations about what to expect. That's why you don't hear me saying Donald Trump's going to trial in March. I can't say that to you because I know the judicial system. And I know what an interlocutory appeal looks like. And I also know what an appeal on a, an interlocutory appeal on a major substantive motion to dismiss looks like, right? And I know how long it takes to get that resolved. You don't hear that at Fox, right? You just hear Biden's going to prison tomorrow. Well, and then tomorrow comes and goes and Biden doesn't go to prison and nobody fact checks that stuff, right? right? Nobody says, why is Biden not in prison? Um, you told me Biden was going to go to prison because I think it's that immediate self it's like that gratification, the immediate gratification of, oh, yeah, he's going to go to prison tomorrow. Well, no, he's not, right? Just like Hunter Biden is not going to prison tomorrow. Like, that is, that is what's happening over there. And so because there isn't that moderation, fact-checking kind of 
um, just kind of discipline there. That's why you don't have that versus on some of the other places and some of the other networks, you, you hear us try to be a lot more thoughtful about managing what the expectation should be from our viewers. So you have just mentioned what was going to be our second topic, which was Trump legal. <laughs> um, but we've had such a fascinating conversation about, and it, it was an unscripted, just listening to you and asking follow-up questions. It, to me, this was totally fascinating, but I hope you will come back so that we can do a Thing about your expertise in law and Trump. And it's not going to go away as a subject of interest because when you mention a March trial, a May trial, an August trial, those are all requests. Those are all possibilities. And these things are going to keep on going. You know, just the motions to dismiss and the commentary on that, the arguments about the gag orders. There's so much to ask you about. Will you please come back again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it anytime. This has been such a pleasure for me. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It no, was thank you so much for coming fabulous. on. Fabulous. Thank you, everyone, for watching this episode of IGN Politics with Katie Fang. Uh, like we said, she will be back with us again for another episode where she can talk about her expertise area, which is all the legal uh, cases into Trump. So you don't want to miss that. But we will be back next week for another episode of IGN Politics. Uh, in the meantime, subscribe wherever you follow your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to them, we are there. You can also watch us on YouTube at youtube.com com slash Politicon. Uh, so be sure to subscribe there and uh, leave a rating so you don't miss an episode. Thank you everyone for watching and we'll see you next week.